Well, good morning. Uh, this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, if you don't, we'll put it on the screen for you. Um, this week and last week are kind of two parts of the same, um, but last week um, we couldn't fit all of it in, I guess. But uh, the uh, it's kind of the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. If we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew together uh, as a community for a couple of years now, and it'll be a couple more um, that we do this, but uh, we actually have um, this this moment in these last two sermons that uh, are last week and this week that theologians and doctrine people and people that write thick books that nobody likes to read, um, they, they love this stuff because last week uh, Peter had his declaration moment where he, he actually announces or answers Jesus and says, you're the Messiah or you're the Christ. And, uh, and which is really, really exciting. And, and Peter, whether he yelled that out like he knew it or whether he was just kind of guessing and, and hopefully and maybe hit, the, hit it, you know, or something like that, then uh, he is the one who says this is uh, who, um, who, who you are. And Jesus gets really excited. And Peter, being the disciple that he is, uh, kind of the spokesperson for the 12 guys who are following Jesus, he gets really excited about it too, as you imagine you would. A, a disciple-rabbi relationship or a disciple-master relationship for them was significant. You would apply and, and you would be chosen. And when Peter rolled into town, he was one of Jesus' disciples. You know? and, and, and the other guys were too, but Peter, he was kind of one of the inside three. You know? And, and uh, James, John, who are brothers, and Peter were kind of the inside trio. Uh, and and uh, John was Jesus's best friend, but, but Peter was one of those close guys. And, and you start to feel like you have a certain amount of privilege then, right? Like if you're friends with the leader, then maybe, maybe the leader wants to hear your opinion on some things. Because he had an opinion on Jesus being the Christ, and, uh, and he was right about that. And whenever you, you know, I call it uh, like Bible college syndrome. Whenever I meet a kid who's just out of Bible college, they think they know everything that the Bible teaches. It's awesome. It's, you just listen to them, and they tell you all this fantastic stuff, and they've never suffered a day in their life, right? And it's, it's something different when you've lived with God for a long time. I know people who don't know scholarly anything, but they know God because of the life they've walked through. And I'd rather, well... In my good days, I'd rather that than Bible college syndrome where you think you know everything, right? Where you think, oh, I took this class on Hebrews, so I know everything there is to know about the woman who wrote Hebrews. That's a joke for Bible college people. <laughs> we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so it's fun to pretend it was a woman because that kind of jabs it to people who don't like uh, women having any ability to be literate. Um, I want to read this this week, but we're going to go through it piece by piece. And uh, there's this major transition that happens as Jesus has been teaching and building. And he has this massive following of people. He's fed 5,000 people one time. He fed 4,000 people one time. Like just miracles happening and radical teaching and religious power. Opponents have been coming and opposing him. And Jesus now makes this turn towards Jerusalem, which is significant because Jerusalem is the place of his death. And Jesus knows this, and he's turning towards this. And this week is the first time that he brings this up with his disciples, that this is the point of his existence. Jesus isn't here 
to be a prophet. He isn't here to start a movement or start a church. Jesus came to earth to die, which is not the thing you're looking for if you're looking for the Messiah. Peter, as part of the Jewish people, is looking for a Messiah to free them from Roman oppression, right? We're looking for a victorious Messiah, not a Messiah who's going to come and die at the hands of the very people who are oppressing us. And so when Peter messes up this week, we're not going to be too quick to judge him. We are going to judge him because that's fun. But we're not going to be too quick because what he was expecting out of Jesus isn't what he got. And I think we can all resonate with that. I thought God was going to give me the life like this and I end up with this. And sometimes in that, we try to figure out what's going on and sometimes we make a mistake of thinking, oh God, let me tell you what's going on instead of submitting ourselves to what God has going on. And, and that's really where we're going. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. Or, oh yeah, this is the beginning of the end. Oh, I love that. It's so dramatic. Um, but uh, uh, this really is the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. Verse 21 says this. From that time on, sorry, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious power of Judaism, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So this is Jesus the Messiah saying, guys, this is what's going to happen. We're going to start walking towards Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to suffer. Then they're going to kill me. Then I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. Okay, they probably weren't even hearing the third part, because when they got to killed, it was like, wait a second. This is not how you start a movement. This is not how we overthrow the Romans. This is not how we institute the new glorious age of Jesus. So Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You need to understand. (laughs) For Peter to pull aside the master and say, Listen, I appreciate it, but you're probably tired. It's Monday you know, you, you preached a dud on Sunday, but we can get over this. For Peter to pull aside Jesus, Jesus, and say, listen, you probably remember me. I was the guy last week who predicted or declared you're the Messiah. You probably remember me, the author of such books as First and Second Peter, right? <laughs> but I don't think this is going to happen. Peter stands in direct opposition to Jesus. He stands where all of us would have stood if we had the chance. He stands where all the other 11 disciples would have stood if they had any guts at all to stand up and say what they were actually thinking. It's not like this is a big surprise. When Jesus comes along and says, hey, what's going to happen next is some suffering, some death, and then some resurrection after, we go, yeah, I like that last part, but the first two, no thanks. Like when, when, <laughs> when I talk to people about following Jesus and I say, I think it would be a good idea for, for you to follow Jesus. Don't you and I, don't we tend to skip the first two? Don't, I've never said to someone, you probably need to follow Jesus so that everything in your life will immediately get worse, but then Jesus will provide resurrection at the end. But isn't that the story? If you look at like the Apostle Paul, 
maybe the follower of Jesus in the New Testament after the Gospels, the guy, his life got worse immediately when he met Jesus. And it got worse for a long time. Paul and Jesus, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul is struck blind. He's later healed. Struck blind as a way of breaking him down. Jesus says this to the, to, uh, the guy who was going to heal Paul. I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. For years I had that on my office wall. Because for Jesus... What it means to follow him is to learn how much you must suffer for his name. And so when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, we're going to Jerusalem now, and there I will suffer many things from the religious power that you trusted with your life. And then I will be killed. And then I will be resurrected on the third day. The natural response is to pull Jesus aside and say, listen, I appreciate that, but that message just won't sell. We're trying to build a church here, right? Like we have budgets, we have to pay rent, something else. Jesus says this is the direction we're going. So Peter pulls him aside. And Jesus, being the ever-gracious guy he is, responds to Peter, and this is in red letters, not because it's Jesus speaking, but because he's so angry. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever prayed to Jesus and hoped to get an answer, but you've never hoped for this answer. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Oh, crap. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus isn't saying Satan like Peter is actually the devil, so you know. This is uh, you from, like, this is, this is like a metaphor or something like that, like he's, trying to express something. And when Jesus refers to Satan in the language, he's calling him the enemy. Anything that is the enemy of Jesus is Satan to Jesus, which is a whole other theology that we don't need to talk about today. But Jesus refers to Peter's blocking of his death, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection as satanic. You're the leader of the disciples, a minute ago, you were the guy who declared that Jesus is the Christ. A minute ago, Jesus gave you the keys to the kingdom. A minute ago, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this guy, or this guy's declaration, on this guy's leadership. And this guy has all the power. And then Jesus said, and then Peter, who has the authority now because Jesus gave it to him, says, no, we're going to change the travel plans. And Jesus calls him Satan. Ah. Because how often do we rest on the authority that God gave us? I have pieces of paper that are signed by superintendents that say how much authority I have. And apparently, Jesus could care less. One of those pieces of paper is framed. (laughs) It's on my wall. Yeah. 
It's a, it has fancy writing. It's actually, when I got licensed, I skipped my own ceremony. That's how much I value, I care about that. But <laughs> that's why it's sarcastic. The, when Jesus looks at the authority structure that he set up, it doesn't mean that it has more authority than Jesus himself. When Jesus gives you the authority, even if you're just like a leader of yourself, if you're just the leader of your own individual life, you don't have more authority over yourself than Jesus does. And if you oppose what Jesus is trying to do in your life, then Jesus thinks you're working hand in hand with the devil. Ouch. Because how often in my life does Jesus point at something that's uncomfortable? Does Jesus call me to something that's not desirable? Does Jesus give me opportunity to serve others in a way that doesn't make me look so awesome? Because I have a plan for my life. I'm building my brand. I've got, I don't even know, Twitter followers. None of you are my Twitter followers. So, whatever, they're all robots. But, <laughs> but there is this thing that we think that my life needs to move like this, like there's steps on the ladder, and here I go. And, and as I go up the ladder, I will have more influence for Jesus. Jesus can use my celebrity for himself. And it seems like the steps to following Jesus are descending steps. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's kind of a cute thing now, taking up your cross, isn't it? Like, oh, it's the cross I have to bear. I have a kid in middle school, so I have to get up early. It's the cross I have to bear. <laughs> right? We have folding metal chairs. Oh, it's the cross we have to bear. We set up our church. Oh, it's the cross we have to bear. It's, I live in the Pacific Northwest and it rains all the time. Oh. Or my friend at work made fun of my faith. Or I go to a school and the teachers say something that I don't believe. Oh, it's suffering. So you know I'm mocking us right now. The cross, we have this cute thing where we like to, and if you hear preachers say this, you can make a, like a, a puking sound in the back if you're ever in this, but uh, preachers will like to pre compare the cross to the electric chair in our culture. And we have some states that have the death penalty in our culture, and politically we're not going to talk about that, but it's there. In our culture, we tend to try to develop the most humane way possible when we feel that the law has called for the death penalty. And so we like to compare the electric chair because it's maybe the worst. And the Roman Empire would look at our electric chair and laugh because it's cute. Because the, if you carried your cross, the demonstration of putting that cross on your back and walking through, they've probably already beat you up badly enough so that you're unrecognizable. And you're dragging that thing. When Jesus carried his cross, they had to pull someone out of the crowd because Jesus couldn't go any further and the guy had to carry the cross and Jesus. And then they bring you to this place and nail you to it on display 
Like these things didn't happen in a room somewhere. They happened on the side of the road so that other people would see. And the people would mock you and spit at you. And on the cross, you didn't die from the cross. You died from suffocation because you could no longer pull yourself up anymore. And you were pulling yourself up as you were nailed to a board. And the Romans crucified so many people that they ran out of wood. And so they started just using the crossbeam and nailing people to trees. And as you're carrying your cross, there's historical examples of the crowd getting so unruly that they actually killed people while they were still carrying their cross. So when Jesus said it's carrying your cross, it wasn't what we think it is. It's a complete embarrassment, a complete shame, a complete loss to where you no longer have anything left. When he talks to the disciples and he uses the cross metaphor, we think it's cute jewelry, right? Like I, we have a necklace with a cross on it. If we traveled back in time, they would think we're the weirdest people in the world. And I'm, you can wear your cross. I know, I'm, I know it has meaning. I wear ones, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. But they're... If we went back into Jesus' day and we showed up and we were walking around with a cross necklace, they would think we were psychotic. For Christians today, it's a sign of the resurrection, right? And it has been historically. I'm not saying we should stop wearing crosses. That's stupid. That's judgmental of me, but I'm right. But <laughs> the, uh, but when we, when we think that when Jesus says we need to take up our cross, a lot of times we think it's something really easy. And what Jesus is pointing to is this, like if you decide to follow me, don't think that things are going to go awesome. Don't judge the success or failure of your following of Jesus as to whether things are going awesome or not. Like your life might be going terrible, and it might be because you're living in obedience and submission to God. Sometimes our life goes terrible because of our own stupid choices, right? We can feel that. Sometimes our life goes terrible because God's called us to that place. God's called us to that life and asked us to go this direction. God's given us opportunities because we are the person that he's decided to use in this way. And so we've got this whole different scorecard where Peter's got this scorecard of preservation, of being of, of, the, of a certain life that Jesus is supposed to have. And then over here, Jesus has this different scorecard of obedience and understanding this is what I was born for. This is why I'm on this earth. This is why we're turning in the direction of Jerusalem and we're going to start walking. And when we get there, it's going to be terrible. And if you want to follow me, it's going to be difficult. It's probably going to be the thing in your life that overshadows everything else. Let me keep reading, all right? This is where Jesus talks about what it means. And he uses three statements that begin with the word for, all right? I'll talk about each one individually. But if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's why. For whoever would save his life, would lose it. 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me explain this real quick. Whoa, sorry. When Jesus dies for us, people can take this verse, weird extremists, and take this verse and say, I'm going to die for Jesus. We see that in religious fundamental extremism in our country, or in our world, sorry. For all sorts of different religions, including Christianity. This is not where Jesus is pointing. Jesus is not calling us to be a suicide cult. All right? And if you use this verse in that way, it's a radical misuse of Scripture, and you're perverting what Jesus' message is. If you just pull this out, because Jesus came to give life, not to give death. So what he's talking about when he says, lose your life, is that thing that we say, get a life, the life, your personal desires, your steps up the ladder, your plan. What's going to happen in your life? Where you're going? What's going to be the thing that you're famous for? Even if it's just Albany famous or YouTube famous. Where's that pushing? And Jesus actually says, if, that, if you're willing to hand that over, then you'll find life. And, but it won't be the life that everybody thinks. Because being alive in our culture means exactly that, right? Being known, being rich. Being alive in a lot of church culture means fame and fortune and wealth and health and prosperity. When what Jesus seems to do is say, if you're willing to give all of that up, you will find life. You will find some kind of weird joy that people don't understand. The Bible calls it a peace that passes understanding. So that you live through your life and people look and say, that's weird because you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. Which bears witness to the Holy Spirit living in you. It also points whoever loses his life for my sake. Pardon me. Sometimes Christians um, intentionally set themselves up to be persecuted, right? Like you wear a Christian t-shirt that says you're all going to hell, and then you're surprised that people don't like you. Oh, they're persecuting me. They can't handle the truth. Or it could be that you're rude, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know if anyone sells shirts like that, but sometimes understanding what it is to lose your life for Jesus' sake is not the same as losing your life for your own self-righteousness sake. Losing your life so that Jesus gets glory is different than losing your life so that you feel better about yourself. This is the difference of legalistic religion and following Jesus. Because when we set up legalistic religion, we feel good about ourselves, right? Like I have these six rules, and if I follow these six rules, I feel like God might be impressed. But really, I have those things set up so that I, I feel like God might be impressed. Not so that God might actually be impressed. And the temptation, the temptation of that is deep and severe. We have those things. I have those things, and so do you. And what we need to ask is that Jesus would take those things for his sake and his glory in order that we would understand what liberation, freedom, and life is in Christ.
Take the very things that I hold most dear. Take the very things that define who I am. Jesus continues and says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so you know, he, this applies to women as well. He's talking to all guys in a male-dominant society, so it would be confusing if he used the word person. They would all be like, what is this? But they'd miss the point. But Jesus actually refers here to what we give our soul to. The soul is this great unknown thing, right? The thing that science can't get their hands on. The thing that you can't empirically like prove the soul, but we know it exists. Like you are more than the physical body of yourself walking around, right? There's something more to that. Than your soul, we can't open up your a, a brain and find, here's the soul. But the soul is really who you are. And do we not see all the time the giving up of who people are? And we just, like, I don't know if anything breaks our hearts more than when a person gives up who they are in order for some kind of gain or some kind of benefit. This is why in a movie, when someone double-crosses someone, it makes you so angry because they gave up, they sold out, they stopped being the person that you hoped they were. I think this is why a lot of us don't like ourselves. Because at some point we gave up who we were. Because you know inside, in your soul, there's someone who you are and you've traded that off in order to gain something in this world. You've shoved it down, you've hidden it, you've made it go away because it isn't the thing that's going to help you move forward or be whatever or take the next steps up the ladder. I think it's why when you visit an AA meeting, it's so incredible because there's people who just lay out who they are. I think that's also why it's so scary. Because maybe you gave your soul away a long time ago and you're not even sure what's going on there anymore. And opening that up and actually having real like heart conversations that are honest and open is terrifying. And not terrifying because what other people might, it's terrifying of what you might think of yourself. Other people might think you're crazy, that's fine. They probably already do. But when you open up yourself and say, wow, I really, that's not, I am who I don't want to be. Or <laughs> I was moving in this direction with my life, not with my career or my progress or whatever, but this is the kind of person I dreamed of being, the kind of person. And through whatever circumstances, usually we develop into this hardness or we numb it with an ism, workaholism, alcoholism, addictions. We numb that so that we can ignore the dream and the desire that was in us. 
We give away our souls so that we can gain the whole world. And in the process, we actually lose everything. The cost is so, so, so deep. The third four, in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels, His angels, in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The Son of Man is Jesus' reference to Himself, and He refers to His return with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He will actually repay each person according to their deeds, according to their actions. This flies in the face of a theology that says you just got to say this prayer and then it's done. Because that prayer apparently is transformative It's if, and you can read the book of James, if it's accompanied by a change in the actual actions in your life. The reason that you should take up your cross every day and walk forward and follow Jesus into that life is because when Jesus returns, he looks at your life. When you get to heaven, and let's say St. Peter is there with his keychain, he probably isn't going to say, tell me about your belief in the triune God. And tell me about your belief in communion. Where do you land on the transubstantiation spectrum? Because we don't. (laughs) We don't even know how to spell that. But I can show you how much I love Jesus because it lived out in my life. You can say you love your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or yourself as much as you want, but your action shows me what's true. Every single time. You can say that you hate something and then turn around and do that very thing. And I don't doubt your actions. I doubt what you said. And we have this kind of weird declarative thing that we want to follow Jesus because we say it. And Jesus apparently comes back and says, when I return, there will be judgment on people's actions, on on what you have done. And it's kind of like a veiled threat there from Jesus too, right? Like, this isn't my buddy Jesus that I like. This is Jesus saying, I will repay, crap, each person according to what he has done. This isn't, (laughs) like, if you're here for the first time and you thought there was a nice Jesus here, apparently he's not here this week. (laughs) Apparently this week Jesus says, if you want to follow me, and I call all men and women to follow me, then I ask you to follow me into my death, into my suffering, because that is the path to resurrection. The death of the old self, the death of that self who held on, that self who thought that they had a handle on everything, that self that thought I could pull Jesus aside and tell him what was the best idea. The path of following Jesus is sticking that self on a cross so that the new self can be resurrected. Because when Jesus resurrected, he was into something completely different. 
The text ends like this, verse 28. Truly I say to you, Jesus talking to his disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Which there are no less than seven valid theological interpretations to what on earth this means. The most likely is it refers to something called the transfiguration, which in a couple of weeks we're going to get there, where Jesus actually appears with Elijah and Moses, and they, Peter actually wants to build a church there because that's what we do, right? When we have a good experience, we build a church on it. It's like a religious version of the Portlandia bird sketch, but um, we want to hold on to these experiences, and we want to do that. And Jesus actually points towards this and says, you will see these things. You will have an experience. Everyone I know who's followed Jesus, who's picked up their cross, I've, ne I've never heard them regret it. The stakes are so high. Because the stakes of choosing whether to follow Jesus or not is eternal life with God or eternal separation apart from God. And it's not something that starts after you die. It's something that you start today. And people choose to live apart from God or they choose to live into and with God. And then that carries on according to your actual salvation. The best modern example of this is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who, if you read books, there was a book written last year or the year before about his life. An incredible theologian, incredible pastor. Lived in Germany previous to World War II. Came over to America for a sweet, cushy job. He was going to teach people the Bible. And the whole Nazi regime thing happened. And he went back. And he went back to declare Jesus in the face of evil. And that evil killed him. He was actually put to death by the Nazis for his role in the opposition to Hitler, which was pretty awesome. You can Google this stuff. But Bonhoeffer was a good professor. He had a career ahead of him. He had things, he should have been doing books and CDs and DV, like he should have had a multi-site church and we should be following him on Twitter, like he was going to be big. And for some reason he felt like God called him to go and speak because God gave him opportunity as a German person to speak to his own country and it cost him everything. And don't you want to be like that? Don't you want God to call you? The problem is I think we want God to call us, but we want God to call us, you know, to a certain place, to a certain time, to a certain way. I don't want God to call me to Umbu Batu. I don't. I don't tell him that because I'm afraid he's going to trick me and make me do that. And that's why I use the country Umbu Batu because it doesn't exist. You know, if I said I don't want to go to, like, whatever, Uganda, you know God's going to get me. But, but I'm being sarcastic, too. Don't be scared. But, but there is this, there are these limits that we try to put on what God's going to do. 
And the true open Christian life actually sacrifices those limits. And I'm not, like if you're a young Christian or you're just considering Jesus, this might be a little too deep. Because I think when we start following Jesus and we start moving in that direction, it's that turning moment, just like Matthew 16 is this turning moment in Jesus' life from building this life and this ethic and this miraculous way that is outstanding and it turns. And you can see those Christians who've made that turn, those followers of Jesus who've said, you know what, I really, really love Jesus. Like I really want my whole life to be all about Jesus. Like I've learned the scripture, like I've, I know God. And I'm turning this direction in a way that everything about me is going to be submitted to his will. Like if the Bible says it, I'm not going to explain it away. I'm actually going to live into it. I'm not going to become some crazy, you know, fundy, whatever. Like I pull a random verse out of the Bible like people do with this scripture this week and just do it. Like I'm going to look at what Jesus is doing and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to see what that is. When that happens, everything changes. Everything. It changes from a life where you're living and Jesus is in your life to a life where you're in Jesus. And there's nothing outside of myself. And if Jesus shows me where I'm limiting him, I nail that to a cross and I let it die. And it's scary. Because I like, I like my boundaries. They're good. I built them, right? Like, I, I like where I have, you know, God forgives all these, but that person, man, they're just a turkey. And then God says, watch this, I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to transform their life. Because that's what the story of Paul is the guy who used to kill Christians and then became their leader. So what's too far? What's that thing that you won't carry? What's that thing that you won't nail to a cross? Because for Jesus, he put his whole self on that cross and on the cross bore the entire weight of humanity's sin. To where his expression on the cross was, God, why have you forsaken me? He felt separation from God. He felt that. What our sin does to us, all of humanity was dumped onto Jesus. And when we turn to communion as a church, that's what we turn to. The broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, we eat a little cracker and drink a little cup of juice. Because it's not just this thing that we remember, it's this thing that happens. And as we reflect on the broken body of Christ, we ask God to break us, the very things that are resistant to him, to forgive us of our sin, to reveal a rebellion to us and forgive us and restore us to living in Jesus. And as we drink the cup, the Bible calls it the cup of the new covenant, the new covenant of new life in Jesus, living in that way. 
Not life with Jesus or Jesus in your life, but your life being put on a cross and living with God, in God.